Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. We've been having these conversations every day on the show, and I'm like, I'm committed to making sure that we have medical professionals. I I read enough to be able to answer a lot of questions. I've done enough research and study and talked to enough doctors, but it's nothing like coming from somebody that has put the work in, gone to school, studied the things, read the reports, done all of the homework. And so joining me right now is Associate Professor and Chair of Pathology, Immunology, Laboratory Medicine at the New Jersey Medical School at Rutgers University. Let me welcome Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you today. It is a pleasure to have you because uh, there are 511 questions about this vaccine and a host of other things that uh, I'm quite frankly baffled. And I don't know how you feel. Uh, I feel like we're in a period where no one trusts anything. So once we could trust the doctors, we could trust, you know, Walter Cronkite for our news. We could trust, you know, David Brinkley. Today, like everybody suspect, like you could do all of the work that you do and people like, you don't know what you're talking about because I was on YouTube or I was on this message board and or talk to Dr. Sabi. You know, it's like it's how do you feel about the misinformation campaign and how we navigate it today, Dr. Fitzhugh? You know, you know, I have to tell you, Karen, I'm a lover of social media. I have built a huge following on social media. I've got 29.5 thousand followers on Twitter. And part of that is because I try to be so real and give people appropriate, proper information. But in a sense, social media is also killing us right now because there's so much misinformation out there. All the rumors, all the innuendo around COVID around the vaccine. Well, this is how you can get it. Well, this is not how you get it. Well, there's microchips in the vaccine. There are not microchips in the vaccine. You know, but there's so much confusion that now people don't know what to believe. And when I have these crucial conversations, I always tell people, you have a doctor, speak with him or her then. Talk to them about your concerns. They know your medical history better than anybody else on earth, better than anybody who you meet on social media. Speak with that person get their advice, and then make the most informed decision you can make because that's really the way that will protect ourselves. A lot of us don't have doctors that we trust. I remember being a little girl uh, growing up on Lafayette Avenue, and my doctor literally lived up the street. And I remember him, Dr. Byrne, my mother would take me. I got my shots. I would get my checkups. I, we could walk to his office. He had a house that was in the basement was his medical practice. And I remember that and get a little lollipop after. I remember the experience and I was with him until I was too old to go to, to him anymore, you know, until I was a teenager. And, you know, then I, I got confused because it's like, which gynecologist? So I went to my mother's and it was like, this white man is not the business mom. I'm sorry. So then I had to go on a search, I found a black woman. It was, it was great. She retired. And then, so now I need a primary care doctor and I'm asking people, you know, it, it is really uncomfortable. And I know, I know for black men, and I'm just going by my father, he never had a doctor until he got cancer. Like he wasn't even trying to go to a doctor for anything. It was, had to be an emergency. He didn't trust it. So I I imagine that he wasn't unusual, that there are a lot of people that don't have a doctor that they can trust. Sadly, he's not unusual. And sometimes it's access. Sometimes we just can't get to a physician. You know, there may not be somebody in our area that we trust. You know, I'm going through the same thing you are. I have a cardiologist because I need one of those too, but my primary care physician just moved and moved to Florida. I'm in New Jersey. That's not going to work out anymore. So now I have to find a new physician. I had a relationship with this woman for over a decade. 
So I hear you. I would say there are trusted sources on social media when it comes to physicians to ask questions. I've been one who's been willing to give of myself, to give all the information I have, to give what I've learned, to share my vaccine trial experience, because I think that was really important. And that did change some hearts in terms of the vaccine. So there are definitely trusted voices. And, you know, it's really up to us to say, all right, I'm going to get this information. Who can I trust? Let me ask around. And it's amazing by word of mouth how you can stumble onto, I don't want to say people like me, but people like me who mm -hmm. really are willing and committed to teaching our community, protecting our community, and getting that information out there so that we can make the best decisions for ourselves. That's how I found you on Twitter, uh, doing all of the great things that you do. Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh is here. Uh, you can follow her at DRFNA on the Twitters. What's your background? Tell us, tell us your journey into medicine. So I didn't, a lot of people who go into medicine know they want to be a doctor since they were like two feet off the ground. I was not that kind of person. I actually wanted to be a biological oceanographer. Wait, I say, wait, wait hold on. Wait, where are you from? Where are you from? I'm from Jersey. I was born in Newark. Okay. Well, so did, uh, you know, we don't get to go to the ocean much. You know, my dad took me to Cheesequake Park when I was little. That's about as, you know, we, we do a lot of beach. So ocean, I mean, how, why? I love the idea of fish and learning about fish. I love to fish. My mother used to take me fishing. We were really little. We would go my mom and my grandpa St. Clair, but they both pet rest in peace when we would go visit them in DC. And so I love, I mean, I've always loved fish. I tried to keep aquariums badly. I killed every fish that I ever owned, including that one fish I had named Denzel. We know who he was named after. Um, and so when I got to college, there at, you know, I went to Rutgers University for my undergrad as well. And on the then Cook College, now the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences, or SEBS, all the names have changed. There was a Marine Science Institute. And I really got into that. I thought it was just amazing. You could go to the Institute and see the different research people were doing and learning all the different things. I said, oh, this could be an experience. And so I applied for a summer research internship down in Tucker, New Jersey, which is way down South Jersey near Atlantic City. And I spent the summer there and I swam with the fishes and I spent time baking in the sun and I loved it. I loved all of it. What I didn't love and what scared me half to death was trying to get grants. And I watched these PhDs trying to write their grants, which is funny because now I write grants, but I didn't do that then. And it scared me to death. And I just said, mm -mm, I have to find some way to change the world, but I'm not gonna do it this way. And a lot of people for a long time have been trying to push me into medicine. I had an advisor at Rutgers um, Dr. Jenkins, who was like, you are one of the smartest people I know. You could be a pre-med. Just do, do an experience. Do something with a doctor. See if you like it. And so I did a summer research, a summer internship the next year through the SMART program, which is run here at New Jersey Medical School with Dr. Um, Joy Anderson, who was one of the radiation oncologists here at the time. And I was just floored by how she helped people, the interactions, what she could do. And I just said, okay. I think I can do this. And so I did the whole thing. I took the MCATs. I already had the prereqs because I was, I was a biology major. So I had all those prerequisite courses, did my thing. And I got the good score. I remember my mom, you know, when she was alive, she got the, I was in New Brunswick. She was in South Orange. She opened the envelope for me from tech because back in the day we got our stuff in the mail. And she opened the envelope for me because I was terrified the score wouldn't be good enough. And when she read my score, I said, I'm applying to medical school. And I did, I applied. 
I got into both New Jersey Medical School and Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And I chose to go to New Jersey Medical School be, mo much because I found out just before I had to matriculate that my mother was diagnosed with colon cancer. And so I didn't wanna be too far away uh, from my family. And so, and she was quite young. She was 48 when she was diagnosed and then she passed at 49. So right. she's had a lot of influence on me in terms of my medical decisions, how I like to talk to people, how I treat people because I saw what she went through. But that's the long story short about how I got the medicine. So why pathology, immunology? Why, why that discipline? So interestingly, and I was good at pathology. I had really good grades in pathology in my second year of medical school, which is when we took it back then. But I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I really thought I wanted, and I wanted to be an orthopedic oncologist, which is specifically an orthopedic surgeon who treats cancers of the bones and the muscles and the fat, things like that. And I did all the things you're supposed to do. I, I did the orthopedic acting internships. I went to other hospitals to rotate. But what I didn't do, at least in my opinion, was I didn't get on board with that from the very beginning of medical school. So a lot of people who go into orthopedics either have a family member in ortho or they have knowledge of that background. They know how you need to get into it. I didn't have that knowledge. So by the time I did my research, I was already in my fourth year of school, which was my last year. And it was, it was really too little too late. Um, I applied to 89 programs, which is a lot. At the time, there were only 109. So I applied to almost all of them. Um, I got interviews at, at 22, but I could only go to 18 because the dates were the same. And I put my rank into the match, but I didn't match. And I remembered back to an experience I had on one of my orthopedic rotations where we went to visit pathology. And the pathologist who was a woman, Dr. Mira Hamid, who was amazing and is still one of my mentors to this day, the way she would just, she would talk to the surgeon, she owned the situation. She essentially got to tell them what to do because without her guidance on frozen section, like looking at the tissues while the patient's in surgery, they, did, they couldn't move on with what they wanted to do next. And seeing that control was just amazing. I was like, oh, this is deep. If I hadn't applied ortho, I could have done this. And then I didn't match ortho. And I always say everything happens for a reason. This was my blessing because I am so happy to be here. What is pathology? Pathology literally is the study of disease. So what pathologists do is look at tissues or look at fluids from your body to try to make a diagnosis. So we are physicians, we're medically trained. We just don't all see patients all the time. Some of us do though. You also uh, specialize in immunology. What is that? What is that specialty? So immunology is the study of how cells react to triggers. I guess it's the easiest way to explain it. So same things we think about will make it relevant to COVID. Antibodies, that's immunology. That's looking at a cellular response to something that's introduced to your body or introduced to those cells. So that's why the COVID vaccines have become so important because a lot of what's going on with that research is immunology, looking at how those, like those new mRNA vaccines interact once they get into your body. All right, let's get into the weeds. I want to go to a break. I want to allow for time for time for people to come in. I want to bring Tanya Pinkins in as well, uh, because I, I need you to answer a few questions. And then people have questions as well regarding the vaccine. A lot of people don't want to get the vaccine. As you mentioned, the myth, it's metals. Uh, now I'm, I'm magnetized. Uh, it's a chip. 
It's gene therapy. It's, it's, it's changing your genes. Let's talk about what the vaccine actually does. Let's talk about what COVID-19 actually does. And is there a way to fight COVID-19, Corona, Delta, all of the variants without taking the vaccine? Let's talk about that when we come back as well. Dr. Fitzhugh, Valerie, Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh is sticking around. Let me welcome to the show uh, my partner in power this Wellness Wednesday, the one and only Broadway Tony diva actress, producer extraordinaire. The Red Pill is her latest project. Tanya Pinkins, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming through. She's in Panama, y'all. And let me welcome back, of course, Dr. Fitzhugh, uh, Valerie Fitzhugh. When you hear a doctor trying to, and I was like, why did you say we have no evidence yet? Or just just say there's no ev- evidence. Don't give don't give any qualifiers. These people are just ooh, they're just so ignorant. How do you feel listening to them scream and yell at this woman, this doctor? I mean, my face told the whole story. I just I. You know, I'm floored, but I agree with you. you. Say, don't give the qualifier. Just say there is no evidence to support that, because I will tell you, I work with a lot of OBs in my practice as a pathologist, and they have been very, very loud and very vocal about the fact, and their society has supported them that there is no evidence that these COVID vaccines will affect fertility. In fact, as a pregnant woman, you're at higher risk of getting COVID. So if you're not vaccinated, you're at more risk. Listen, Emmy Rossum, the actress. Uh, told everyone they're an idiot. She, she got vaccinated while she was pregnant and she found that her daughter, her baby daughter has now antibodies to fight COVID. So she was like, stop playing. Yeah. So, but let's, let's break it down. Let's break it down for everyone out there. What is, I, I did Moderna. And so Moderna and Pfizer both use the MNRA. And I did, I chose Moderna because of Dr. Kizmekia. I was like, okay, she, she was the brain behind this particular Moderna uh, vaccine. So, and I know Christy Purnell, who's a colleague of yours as well. She was in the trial. She was on, I, I sat on that fence for a long time till my booty hurt. Cause I was on that fence for a long time. I was like, no, no, I'm going to keep my immune up. I'm going to drink lemon water. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do all of the things and stay away from people and wear a mask. I won't catch it. But then people started wanting to come around me. And I was like, I'm going to turn into an agoraphobic old lady with cats. It's not going to be cute. So I made the decision. But what does the vaccine, each one, J&J, Moderna, Pfizer, how are they different? What do they do? So the J&J virus, the J&J vaccine, rather, is different from Moderna and Pfizer. So we'll handle those two together in a second. The J&J virus is what we call an adenoviral vaccine. Vector. Vaccine. Vaccine. I'm sorry, vaccine. <laughs> Ooh, Lord. Sorry. The J&J vaccine, the Janssen vaccine. Sorry, y'all. The J&J vaccine is an adenoviral vector vaccine. So what they use is a little bit of bacteria. They code the virus into the bacterial genome, and then they put that into your body. Your body sees it as foreign and tries to fight it, creating an immune response. You don't get you don't get sick from the adenovirus. That that is broken down. It goes away. But what what happens that's important is now your body has code to make antibodies because they've seen what we call an antigen, that part of the pathogen that wakes up your immune system. So again, this is the immunology. So when your immune system is turned on, you start to make antibodies to the the COVID virus, the coronavirus that's causing this disease. That's good news because if you have antibodies from the vaccine, one, you don't get as sick. And if for some reason you do get COVID, because yes, we've heard about those breakthrough um, infections. We can talk more about that later. Once you're exposed to actual COVID, 
your body has a much better chance of fighting it. So that's one way. And the J&J &J, um, vaccine, as you guys all know, is one shot. So that's Can been very helpful. Can I ask a question about that? I got to ask a question about that. So what's part of what COVID was doing was that the immune response from people was so strong to the actual virus that it was acting like an autoimmune disorder and over attacking the body. And that was what was causing people to get sick. So how is this different than that, that sort of storm response that the body was doing to COVID in some patients? So the vaccine, and that's all true, the vaccines don't overdo it. So you get just, because getting the vaccine is not like getting a full-blown illness. You're getting the part of the virus that you want your body to react to. So when you get that vaccine with that bit of, with that code that's in that bacterial vector, your body says, okay, that's foreign. I don't know you. I have to respond to you. And but, so you respond. So wait, wait, pa pause, but not Dr. After Fitz, you. But if sure. you are then exposed to COVID mm -hmm. and you have that, that thing awakened, now you have even more soldiers to fight. In Tanya's scenario, we the body overdid it. So now you have even more. Is that going to cause that tsunami that created the you know the negative outcomes and the intubations and all of that? No, because once you've been exposed to that vaccine and you make those antibodies, those antibodies now protect you. So those so, so you don't have when you get sick with COVID and you haven't been vaccinated, you don't have those little soldiers. You don't have the antibodies. So if you don't have that antibody, that virus is going to wreak havoc on you because there's nothing to stop it. Your body's never seen it. Whereas with the vaccine, your body has essentially seen a copy of that virus without all the horrible getting sick. So now you've got soldiers on board. If you get exposed to COVID, the soldiers knock it out. That's okay. the whole point of getting that vaccine is so that you don't get, you don't, if you get sick, because again, we've seen breakthrough, you're not sick to the point where you're intubated in the ICU or you die. And that's why the vaccine is so important. Most of these people who have gotten these breakthrough infections, they're at home. It's not fun, but they're at home. They don't have to go to the hospital. They don't have to be admitted. They're not intubated. And that's huge because I can tell you, and I know Dr. Perel could tell you, that first wave of the pandemic was horrific here in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. I mean, the numbers of cases we saw, the intubations, you know, turning people from their backs to their stomachs, trying to help them breathe every day. You know, the more, I mean, our morgue was in the, cause this is part of pathology. Our morgue was so full. We had trucks in our parking lot to store bodies of people who died. I, I don't think fear is a good motivator. I think it's a dangerous motivator. I think facts, science are a good motivator. So here's my biggest question. You know, when I was in law school, one of the things my professor said was, if you can convince someone that two plus two is five, you've done your job. And one of the challenges I think that is facing a lot of people is that the information that we've been getting has been two plus two is five. Oh no, two plus two is six. Oh no, two plus two is eight. And we've been being asked to believe things and then not believe them and then believe them and not believe them. So it's difficult to believe anything when we know that these masks really, really do help go a long way. Yet they say, oh no, don't wear a mask. Oh, do wear a mask. Oh, don't wear a mask. Oh, do wear a mask. So I think for a lot of people, it's like, how can I believe anything you say? The mask is this simple little thing and you can't even decide about that. So I hear you because that's real. That's absolutely real. But the science behind it, 
and that's what's important, the science and the facts. So the facts have shown over 99% of the people who are in hospitals right now, this Delta variant, are not vaccinated. That's a fact. So those of us who are getting vaccinated, and I was in the Moderna trial also, so I'm also a Moderna, Moderna alumnus. The reality is people who are not getting vaccinated are putting themselves at risk. And I'm not trying to scare people because I'm not, I'm not in the business of fear tactics. I'm not, that's not my thing. But I do want people to know that this is a risk they're taking. The masks, I agree with you, do go a very long way. I've been masked up for months, mostly because now I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. Those children cannot be vaccinated yet. And the so I have to the my- it's like, the shedders and the spreaders. That's what the children are, the shedders and the spreaders. And so I have to protect them, right? So I wear my mask. I wear my mask everywhere, even though I'm vaccinated. I think people got very comfortable when Delta wasn't as virulent in this country yet. And it was, all right, we can take the masks off. Now we're vaccinated, it works. The problem with COVID-19, I'm going to be very real with you, is because it's new, we're learning everything on the fly. This isn't like chicken so, pox or measles or mumps where we, we've known this for decades. So here's a big question I have. Japan has been shut down for almost two years. They, have, they didn't let any foreigners visit. And I'm sure that anyone coming in from the Olympics had to be either tested or quarantined for two weeks. So how does that Delta variant suddenly be spiking in Japan, which has been shut down for two years? I hate to say this out loud, but people are clearly bringing it with them. Now, what people are looking for clarity on, and we're still trying to figure this out, is how much virus can a person who's vaccinated carry? Because they may not be getting sick. And that's why, and that's how you know the virus, the, the vaccine is working. If you're not getting sick, that vaccine is working. But what if you're carrying the virus? Because you know who's at risk then? The unvaccinated folks. Mm-hmm. So, one of the ways it may have got to, now this is me hypothesizing being the scientist that I am on the fly. One of the ways it may have gotten there is that people brought it with them. It's a respiratory virus. So it's in the nasal passages, it's in your lungs or the so-called respiratory tree. That's where it is. So if folks are bringing it with them, that's how it gets there. You, it can't get there without having a vector to help it travel through the air. And unfortunately people are that vector. So if they had never seen it, I mean, travel, I think people have to be very careful about travel. Like, I'm not willing to put my children on a plane right now. It's close quarters. Yes, you have to be masked on a plane, but I'm not sure that everybody who gets on that plane is doing everything that they're supposed to do. I'll get in a car and drive. If I'm gonna travel, that's how I'm gonna do it. It's safer. So we just have to be cognizant about our travel, the risks to the people we love and the people we live with. You know, if that, if I'm walking around now, this is an example, of course, if I'm walking around right now with COVID-19 in my nasal passages, I feel great. I'm having a great day today, but I go home and kiss my kids or breathe in their face. Well, now I just expose them and they have no protection. So a lot of it is we're learning every day more and more about this virus because it didn't exist before December, 2019. At least we think it didn't exist before December, 2019. I'm not gonna get into the drama behind that. We're with Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh. Tanya Pinkins is here as well. Uh, so you just told us about what J&J does. What do Moderna and Pfizer, which both use mRNA, what do they do? So the mRNA viruses are a little bit different. And as you have vaccines, Lord, I keep doing that. The mRNA vaccines are a little bit different. 
they're both two doses. So you get one dose and then you get the second a month after you're not, and with either vaccine, you're not considered fully immune until 14 days after the second dose for Moderna and Pfizer and the first or the first and only dose for J&J. So what's different about the mRNA, uh, mRNA vaccines, and again, you get a shot usually in your arm to upper arm, instead of being, instead of being carried on a bacterial vector, you get this, you get a substance called mRNA. It's, um, it's a ribonucleic, a messenger ribonucleic acid. And the messenger part is important because that messenger RNA carries a message. And so the cells use that message to make the protein. The protein, of course, is that antibody. Again, those little soldiers that are going to fight the disease if you get exposed to it. Once those antibodies are made, the cell breaks down the mRNA and gets rid of it. So it's not gene therapy. The mRNA doesn't go into your nucleus, which is where your DNA is. It doesn't combine with your DNA. It simply gives the, it gives the message. Your body then, because your body's smart, will translate that message into a protein. That's the antibody. And then that antibody is in your system to protect you should you be exposed. And your body essentially learned the process of being, of protecting itself from COVID. So now the variants come. The body doesn't recognize because the, the virus has mutated to, because it's smart as well, might be smarter than we are. It's mutating so that it can go from host to host so that it's undetectable, right? So now we're going to have to have boosters or how does the MNRA uh, tell the cells, hey, this is something new or can it? So the message that's made is a message of something called the spike protein. And the spike protein is a very conserved area of the entire message of that virus. So usually when there are mutations, and this is why the vaccine is for the moment is still working against these variants. When the virus mutates, the spoke, the spike protein tends to be what we call conserved. So there aren't many changes in that spike. The changes are in other parts of the virus's message. So because your body still recognizes that spike protein, your antibodies, those little soldiers will come in and be able to fight it. Now here's a question I have. So a a virus is not trying to kill anyone because it needs a host. It is not ever trying to kill anyone. So what we know that any virus, even the bubonic plague or whatever, there are some people who are immune so what happens for those people who are immune? Like if they just have a natural immunity or say this woman whose baby has been born with an immunity, why should they get the vaccine? We still have no idea how, that's called natural immunity, by the way. What you just described is the process called natural immunity. So anytime you get sick, your body learns to make antibodies for most of us, for those of us who are healthy and don't have immune compromising conditions like cancer, or some autoimmune diseases. Your body will learn how to protect yourself against that virus. And that's why humanity goes on. The problem is, of course, then you get the mutations and and you have the issues. But as long as your body learns, you're good. And that's how this all works. So the issue with COVID is we don't know how long that natural immunity lasts. And that's why we're recommending in the science and the medical community that everybody who can be vaccinated be vaccinated because we have no idea how long natural immunity lasts. Is anybody doing studies of people with this natural immunity to see if that's something that can be, you know, put into something to give to other people? So people are looking at natural immunity. There are some studies from what I've heard that are basically taking people's blood and testing to see what their antibody levels are. Antibodies can be sneaky though. 
your antibody counts can drop really low and you might think you're not immune, but if you're exposed, they'll shoot up sky high because the numbers of the antibodies don't need to necessarily be that high in some people until they're exposed. And then your body knows what to do. Humans are, our, our bodies are brilliant. And that's why a lot of us, you know, a lot of us who have had COVID, thankfully I've not been in that category, are still here to talk about it. You had because COVID? Because our bodies figure it out. Did you have COVID? I did not, thank Lord, I have not. All right. Um, and, and on that natural immunity, um, are there, cause there's a lot of people, holistic folk who refuse to get the vaccine because they, you know, they're, they keep their immune system good. They have no underlying conditions. What do you say to them? So, and again, I don't like fear as a tactic cause it, it doesn't work. But what I do tell them is you may think you're young, you know, cause a lot of the holistic health folks are very young, very healthy, but these are the people who are exercising six days a week. They look great. They smell great. Their life is wonderful. But then you tell them, look, it's the people like you. I mean, you don't think you can get sick. You don't think you're going to be that bad. And most of the time, yes, the people who get really, really sick have the underlying conditions. They have heart disease or they have diabetes or they have obesity, all the things you hear about. But we're seeing more than enough of very healthy people get sick and die from this disease. And my thing is, yes, if you get the vaccine and you may feel crummy for a day. I mean, I did. I didn't feel great after the second shot. So I knew my immune system was at work. You don't feel great. But then the next day you're fine. Whereas with COVID, for one thing, you can be sick for a week, two weeks, a month, you don't know. If you're a long hauler, forget it. And I know people who are long haulers who are still now almost a year since diagnosis or more still have issues and symptoms from COVID. Whereas you get the vaccine, you may feel crummy for 24 hours. All right, let's get for some me, it's a no brainer. Uh, all the lines are lit. Eight, six, well, let me not give out the number. Let's just go straight to the calls. Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh is here. Tanya Pinkers is here. Let's head over to California and welcome in Lynn. You're on. Welcome. Hi, Karen. Can you Hi. hear me okay? Yes, ma'am. Hi. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you. I've been listening to you for a long time and I've been watching, well, I watched Tanya when she was on both of her soaps. So it's a treat as well to speak with her. Nice. Um. My question for Dr. Fitzhugh is, just to give you a, a quick background, um, I was diagnosed last January with a recurrence of leiomyosarcoma, and um, I went through 10 months of chemo, did my last treatment uh, last December. However, um, just met with my oncologist yesterday to go over my recent results from my last PET scan. And it looks like there's activity again, and the tumor board is meeting today as we speak. Lord willing, I won't have to start treatments again, but, um, you know, I'm in the fight <laughs> again. But just to give you an idea of uh, myself, I've been uh, healthy, you know, exercise, um, practice a whole food plant-based diet for over 20 years. So I realize that disease does not discriminate. Um, I mean, just the fact that i yeah, had this recurrence of cancer is evidence of that. Um, during the first wave of COVID, there were no protocols in place for oncology patients here in Loma Linda. However, things have changed. And um, being that I'm immunocompromised, my doctors on my team have uh, recommended that I hold off on the vaccine and um, I'm interested in getting your take on that, um, you know, being that you are a pathologist and immunologist, um, you know, it'd be great to hear your take on that. I've been listening, um, 
very well educated, used to work in the pharmaceutical industry, so I understand mRNA, DNA, all that. So, um, you know, just want to get a second opinion for myself, um, seeing that I'm in this situation, you know, moving forward. First of all, prayers uh, definitely coverage, Lynn, for a good uh, outcome uh, with with this today. Um, and thank you for sharing. Dr. Fitzhugh? Amen. I offer you my prayers as well, Lynn. You know, I, I don't disagree with your physicians in terms of getting the vaccine versus not. You know, one of, one of the populations that we look at in terms of getting the vaccine is people with cancer. And it's not suitable. And of course, you have to look at all different types of cancer, but it's not suitable for all patients with cancer. And so I hear what your physicians are saying, and I, I think they're on the right track with that. Um, you know, I hope that those around you, you know, who are aware of your situation are taking good care when they're around you. So they're doing the right thing. And that, I think that's why when I said, you know, we, everybody who can get vaccinated should. And that's so that we can protect people like Lynn who can't. And that's one of the things that we need, you know, I look at it like humanity. One of the best things we can do is to protect each other. And I think one of the best things we can do for people like you, Lynn, is for people like me who can be vaccinated to go out there and get that vaccine. But I think, you know, I think your doctors are in the right place in terms of their concern simply because cancer is considered an immunocompromising, um, an immunocompromising condition. Yep. Or stay the hell away from Lynn. How about that? You know, there's a lot of people that want to be in people's faces because they love them. Uh, but you could be the cause of that person getting sick. And I, I said this on these airways. I never want to be responsible for somebody else's sickness. Um, thank you again, Lynn. Let's go to Suzanne in Rockland County, New York. Welcome. All right. All right. I think we're listening to your um, GPS, Suzanne. Hi. 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 I'm sorry. Um, yes. Um, so happy to be speaking to such brilliant women. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask the doctor a question. I had some young people at my house, uh, friends of my daughter, and, you know, they're all in the childbearing age, and after a couple of wines, uh, you know, arguing that they didn't want to take the uh, vaccine, one of them pulled me over, and she said, look, you know, I happen to have herpes, and I think that's an underlying condition, and I'm afraid of taking the vaccine. So I thought, what a great opportunity to ask you, um, what do you think about that? I, I had no way of speaking to her. I know that it has to do, of course, with the immune system. Um, and um, I just had no way of um, explaining to her one way or the other, because I, I just didn't know what to say. Thank you, Suzanne. Dr. Fitzhugh? If you have herpes, which is a, a virus that is, doesn't have a cure, how should you get a vaccine or sh should you not? She should absolutely go get vaccinated. Here's how I look at it. I had chickenpox when I was 15. You know, again, a virus. I couldn't get the chickenpox vaccine because once you have chickenpox, there's no point. Because the way chickenpox works is you really get it once. Why do you want to get that chickenpox vaccine? Because you don't want to get shingles at 50, because that's a horrible disease. The fact that she has herpes has no bearing on COVID. Tell her to go ahead and get vaccinated. Okay. Uh, I had chickenpox. And I do know someone with herpes who got vaccinated and it's fine. Okay. Thank you, Tanya. All right. Let's go to Jason in New York. Jason, thanks for good holding. Good afternoon, ladies. 
quick, um, Karen, if it's all right, Tanya, look into Container Homes in um, Panama where you're at. They're beautiful. Um, okay. I, I choose not to. I choose not to take the vaccine, and I have no problem with anybody who does take the vaccine. My only issue is that we don't talk enough about alternatives to the vaccine and that there's certain things that you can do. There's certain things that you could take to boost your immune system. And I think one of the important things that people should look into and should do is wear the mask, constantly clean out their nasal passage and build up their immune system. And like I think all of you have said, keep your distance from people who've taken the vaccine and who haven't taken the vaccine and, you know, just go about doing that. Because lastly, I can't trust a vaccine that people are now trying to get me to pay for. in order to take it. Where, that, where are you getting, I, where is that? Uh, so it's not, it's free, Jason. And thank you for your call. A couple of things, really rapid fire, because we got to go to break. Um, the people are concerned because it was an emergency, it was pushed out, and it's not FDA approved. Please, Dr. Fix You, deal with that, and then let's deal with Jason's uh, thoughts. So the reason the vaccine happened so fast is because of the amount of money that was thrown toward it. We have never in the history of mankind had $10 billion thrown at the development of a vaccine the way we did with this one. So in terms of emergency, so that's why it happened fast. That's the only reason, because there was money, honey. The reason that, uh, so the emergency use authorization, there are two things you can do. An emergency use authorization is not approval. It's a way after showing data that something is safe and effective, that you can have something be used in an emergency fashion without getting the full approval because the full approval takes longer. That said, I think Pfizer for a fact has applied for their full approval in those 12 and up because they're already being used for that. So it's just the full approval takes longer. The emergency use is that we could start saving lives without having to wait, you know, six, eight, nine, 12 months for the full on approval. And remember the trials are still collecting data. So like I'm still in the trial. So they're still collecting my blood to look and see what antibodies I had and what effect the vaccine is, has had on my body. So we're still, the trials are still ongoing, even though the emergency uses have been approved. Now, uh, as far as are there ways to, to because we talked about this, I asked this question, to not get the vaccine. What's the alternative to not getting vaccinated and protecting yourself from COVID? Well, the best ways to protect yourself are all the things we've been talking about. So social distancing, mask wear. I know tired of people, people are tired of social distancing because they can't go see anybody. They can't hug anybody. I get it. If you're single and dating, social distancing is a nightmare. I get all that. But social distancing, um, you know, mask wear, washing your hands for at least 20 seconds of soap and water or using an approved high alcohol. So at least 75% hand sanitizer are ways that you can protect yourself, but none of them are as effective as the vaccine. And the alcohol does some some of the hand sanitizers actually kill the good bacteria because we need some of the bacteria, and so we are actually creating super germs. And that just it's just so much here. There's just so much. All right, can you stick around because we got like 50, 11 calls still on the line, Doctor? Can you stick around, Doctor Fisu? I know you're working. I sure can. Okay. All right. She's gonna stick around, and answer as many questions as possible. Tanya's sticking around. Doctor Valerie Fitzhugh, thank you for your time. Uh, Doctor Tanya Pinkins. <laughs> 
lawyer, extraordinaire, actress, all of the things in here asking the agitating questions so we don't leave here with dirty draws. That's a Dick Gregory thing. Let's head over to uh, Sharon, who's been holding on, in Maryland. Welcome. Come on, Sharon. I heard you breathe. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi, and I want to say that I've been listening to you, and I was one of the ones who wrote a letter to get you an extended show after you did your, um, you know, your trial in the beginning. Oh. So I'm, I'm a long-time family member. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. So, hi, doctor. I just, I had a question. So, I was one of the vaccine holdouts, and, you know, I wanted to do it to be an example to my family. I got it a week ago, and about two days after I got it, I'm developing like little blistery bumps all over my body. And I, I came in when you guys were talking about the chicken pox and I had the chicken pox when I was younger. So I was just, I wanted to ask the doctor, like, is there a correlation? Cause like I said, I'm having these little bumps that's coming up all over with blisters. So it usually wouldn't be all of Chickenpox, again, doesn't usually reactivate, so I don't think it's chickenpox, but you might be reacting to something, one of the products that's in the vaccine. So I would say if you have a physician, give him or her a call. If you don't, I would say go to an urgent care just to make sure you're not having a reaction to the vaccine, because some people have. You know, there are people who have allergic reactions to these things, and so you want to be sure that you're not having a reaction, because when you get the second shot, it could be worse. So you definitely want to check, you want to check that out. And and that sounds like an allergic reaction. The percentage of people who get a, an allergic reaction, what what is that percentage? I'm not even going to lie to you. I don't know offhand. I know it's very low. I have one friend of the now, because remember, I'm a healthcare person. I know thousands of people who've gotten vaccinated. And I have one friend who got hives after. Okay. So it is low, but people who have other allergic condi- conditions tend to be at more risk for that. So it's definitely something you should get checked out. All right. Thank you, Sharon. And please uh, pray for the blisters. And thank you for uh, making sure that I was still here. That was back in August of 2014 when I first started. That was a long 2014. Yep. Uh, Lisa in Atlanta. Welcome. Hey, Karen, how are you? Thanks so much for taking my call. And hello, doctor and Tanya. I'm actually calling about my older brother who's 67. He is hypertensive. He is uh, a smoker. Um, not a regular smoker, it goes between cigars and, and cigarettes, but he's a lifelong asthmatic and um, probably a little overweight too. And he has refused to get the vaccine. He believes that um, December of 2019, he had COVID. It's undiagnosed. He never, I don't know that they were even testing for it then, but he feels like he had all the symptoms. I told him that it could very well have been a very, very bad case of bronchitis because the symptoms somewhat mimic each other, with the, especially with the respiration. But he feels now that 14 months later, he is covered. He's got the antibodies. And I told him, I don't think so. And so my question to you is, if somebody did have COVID back when, how long are those antibodies active and protective? Um, for the for that person. So that's the natural immunity we were talking about. And the answer is we don't know. And that's if he actually had COVID, which 
one, we couldn't have tested for in December 2019 because the first tests in the United States weren't manufactured until March of 20 of March of 2020. And testing is another thing that we do as pathologists. So I was elbow deep in testing for much of last year. So he couldn't have been tested. And it's very unlikely that he had COVID at that time, if everything that we've been told is true, which is the disease wasn't even seen in China until 2019, and then started showing up in other, in other parts of the world after that. If he wants to know, and this is not foolproof, but if he wants to know, he could have a blood test done to see if his body is making COVID antibodies. But even still, we don't know how long those antibodies last in people who have had the disease. So his best bet, because from what I'm hearing from you, he has a lot of risk factors. Asthma is, puts him at risk. Smoking puts him at risk. Hypertension puts him at risk. And if he is a little bit overweight, that puts him at risk. So his best bet would be to get vaccinated. But if he's not willing to do that, then he needs to do all the other things, socially distance, wear that mask, keep washing those hands and making sure you know, that he stays away from people who are sick. How long do the antibodies work in vaccinated people? Because I know uh, we had um, Cameron Webb on and, you know, it's the, they're only knowing based on the time. So, so far, it's still working. So you do you know when the antibodies going to run out or if they're going to run out? So we don't know if they're going to run out. So just like you said, so far, they're still working because people like me, we're still in the trials. So they're still testing our blood to look for those antibodies. So right now, yes, you know the overwhelming majority of trial participants, so these are the people who don't have the immunocompromising disease and things like that. These people are still making antibodies, but we when, don't, and that's why the vaccinated? whole I'm sorry. I finished my series in November, 2019. Oh, wow. And so you still have antibodies? As far as I know. 2019, Wait. you mean 2020. 2020, I'm sorry, November, 2020. Oh, I was like, November damn, that okay. was like, we right? were we supposed no, to know November about- Come on, Doctor. You know, I had it before we knew about COVID. Yeah. November twenty twenty. Okay, so November. So you were early in early, uh, ish. And the early, and the earliest are actually March twenty twenty, because Pfizer and Moderna started their trials way back, like at the very beginning. So clinical trials are split into three groups of people: phase ones, phase twos, and phase three. With phase one and phase two, they try to figure out the doses. By phase three, they got the dose figured out. But then you give some people, you give half the people the vaccine and half the people get a placebo. So I was one of the lucky people who got the vaccine in the trial. Okay. Wow. All right. Let's, uh, and thank you uh, for that call. Let's go to Brian in Illinois. Welcome. Hi, Karen. I, thanks for taking my call. I have a question for Dr. Fitzhugh. Uh, we, we all know that COVID-19 doesn't kill everybody. We, we know that. And some people who do have it only have minor symptoms. So what happens to those people and their ability to, their natural ability to combat, combat disease, their immune system's ability to fight off disease after they've survived COVID? And also, do you think we'll be able to completely eradicate COVID-19 or is it here to stay like the flu, even though there's a vaccine for that and thousands still die every year from the flu? So I'll take your second question first, because that's that's the easier one. And I think COVID is here to stay. I don't think we're ever going to eradicate it. And I think, you know, we'll, at some point we may need boosters. We still don't know that yet, but I think it's here. I don't think it's going anywhere. You know, in terms of people who have either mild disease, 
a lot of the disease severity counts determ depends on things that aren't just your that aren't just the virus. So if you're a perfectly healthy person in most cases, but not all, because we've seen people die of COVID who are otherwise very healthy, in most cases, you'll fight the disease, you'll be fine, you'll start to make your antibodies again. We don't know how long those last. But when you start adding on other factors like hypertension or diabetes or cancer or obesity, you're now at higher risk. And so while your counterpart who is fairly healthy may do just fine and have mild disease, as a person with more with other issues going on, you may then end up, you know, in the hospital, in the ICU, on that ventilator. That's what we want to avoid. Now, does that mean that every person with hypertension is going to end up with severe disease? No, but their risk is higher than those who don't have it. So those are the things we look at. Dr. Vissue, we had a doctor on, I think it was last week or the week before, that said even people who recover and feel fine, the lab results are showing uh, COVID in the brain, in the lung, they're still in the tissue. The the remnants of that still are there. Have you, that, that's not true? Okay. She, she gave me the side. Oh, no, it's not that it's not true. No, 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 no. It's not that it's not true. It's just that, and I think in people who are long haulers, I think some of those remnants may stick around a little bit longer. In most people, you're going, you're going to shed it. You're going to beat it. You'll make your antibodies. You're going to be fine. The long haulers have different issues because their bodies continue to react to it, which is why they get so sick. The biggest areas of concern for us with COVID, respiratory. Mm. So knowing that you, know, you breathe it in, so it goes into your nose, into your mouth, you don't want it in your lungs, but it can sit in your lungs. You know, The nasal cavity is where we test because that tends to be where it's the highest. What we find is that the people who end up developing those COVID pneumonias end up doing a lot worse. So it's one thing just to have a little bit of COVID, but if you got that COVID pneumonia, you're at higher risk for having a bad outcome. Okay. So there is there is definitely some push and pull with that. What about the brain, where we we don't have a whole lot of nerves inside there to to tell us things are that brain fog. I'm gonna say with the brain that may contribute to what people call the brain fog, and a lot of people have complained about the brain fog long after they've gotten better. So they're completely better, but they're still forgetful. You know, they still don't remember things the way they remembered them before they had the disease. So that brain, that may contribute to some leftover product that COVID has within the brain tissue. I personally have not seen that studies and I'd love to, if somebody has it, I'd love to read it because that would be interesting. What about the one that said the IQ of people who <laughs> suffer from COVID have dropped? I'm going to send that to you. I'm going to send it to you. All Please right, do. Sharon, I want to see that. Yeah, Sharon in Pittsburgh. Welcome to the Hello. Karen Hunter Show. Hi, I'm Dr. And Wendy. I think I, Tanya, um, Tanya, Dr. Fitzhugh and me. I'm sorry. I am so sorry, Tanya. Um, I was calling you guys. My niece who lives in Tampa uh, about two weeks ago came down with a high fever, um, all the symptoms of COVID. And she had her vaccine. Um, She works out. She does all the right things. Very healthy. However, she went to the emergency room because she could not get rid of the fever and they tested her again for COVID, said, uh, came back that she was negative. So they told her to go home and rest and, um, you know, she'd probably be okay. Well, a week later, she's still fighting the temperature and the same symptoms. So she went back again and they tested her again and said it was not COVID. So at this um, time, they kept her. But the doctor told her that 
because we, she'd been wearing a mask, I mean, doing everything she's supposed to do, that he is seeing that people are coming in with viruses that have been laying dormant, ones that we usually get with no problem, but now you're not able to fight them off because we've been wearing the mask and washing our hands and doing all of those things. And so this happened to her. Um, right now she's doing fine. So is that really true? Um, that viruses are laying dormant and we can't fight them off because we've been wearing the mask for 18 months. Yeah. So I I don't think it's because we've been wearing the mask. I will admit that we've been seeing a lot less of everything else because people have been masked. So I haven't been sick since November of 2019. And that is a truth. You know, and I think it, I think it's because I've been wearing a mask, honestly, because I've never had, I mean, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. I haven't been not sick for a year and a half, and I don't know how long, because my children bring me all the diseases as part of their love to me. So, you know, in that sense, yes, mask wearing will definitely decrease the diseases that we haven't, you know, that you usually see. That's why we had almost no flu last winter. It's because we were all wearing masks. However... And yes, you can have viruses lay dormant in your body, so to speak. I mean, but I don't think a virus is going to lay dormant for so long that a year and a half of wearing a mask is going to contribute to a disease now. It's not, that's not really a common thing. What may have happened, because we all do the right things, right? We all tend to wear the mask, the wash our hands, try to do those things. But if you have a slip up, or if the mask isn't fitting tightly and correctly to your face, then yes, things can seep behind it. One of the most important things we talk about is mask fit. So that if you put on one of those masks with the loops and there's pockets of, you can feel air, if you breathe, you feel air on your hands, that's not a good tight fit. And you may have to actually twist the loops to make a second twist behind your ear so that it's more formed to your face. So wearing the mask by itself is not enough. It's wearing a mask that fits your properly. face well. Right. And if it's not fitting, if it didn't fit her properly, then she would be at risk to catching something else. I'm going to take one more call and I'm going to let you go. Crystal in Georgia, she has an antibodies question for Dr. Fitzhugh, who's a pathologist. Y'all, welcome. And, and everybody that's there, um, y'all kind of hit on this a little while ago, but my question was, if I had COVID like last year, and then I know that I have the antibodies, why do I need the vaccine? Okay. Yeah, we did. So that's a great question, Crystal. And honestly, it's because you don't know how long those antibodies are going to last. So getting that vaccine is giving you some additional protection. In case, I mean, if you know you have, like, if you know you've been blood tested, you know you have antibodies. But shouldn't that be enough? Well, we don't know if that's enough by itself. What we do know is that these vaccines are really working. So what I recommend, and again, it's all it's all level of comfort. I don't want to force anybody's hand, but if you're comfortable enough to do it. I would say do it, and that's the current guidance now. Is even if you've had COVID, you really should consider getting that vaccine. But not if you just had COVID, because they they tell you not if thing. You if you just had it, then you're not you're not eligible to get the vaccine, because that's one of the questions that they ask on that questionnaire. There's one more online. Vixen Mama ten fourteen said her husband just received a t- kidney transplant in April. How long should he wait before he get, gets the second vaccine? He got his first Moderna shot, and then he was called in for the transplant. That's so a unique that- situation. And that is a unique situation. And I'm not, I don't know the answer to that. He needs to speak to his transplant surgeon and his nephrologist right away 
and let them know that information that's really important because with the different medications that you take when you get a transplant, it does work against your immune system. So he may, it may not have the desired effect now that he's had the transplant, in which case he's going to need to do the other things, you know, the mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing, that's all very important. Wow, this is so many factors, but I'm glad uh, you said you didn't know, and I'm glad that you directed people to talk to their physicians because we don't know everything, and you have doctors there for a reason. You're a doctor, so ask them. And thank you, Dr. Fitzhugh, for being here and giving us your time oh, so I generously. Love your style. Thank you, thank you, thank Dr. Fitzhugh. Love your thank you. Style. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure joining you both. Yes. Love to do it again someday. You will be back. We're going to talk Henrietta Lacks next time you come back, and you can follow her at drfna. For Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh, I don't know what the N is for, but she'll, she's probably a middle name, I'm sure. All right. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.